the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that's left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a, a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are gifts sent to my Lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and the third and all the others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts, and I am sending on ahead. When I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. So if you've been with us in this series, you know we've been building to today. And it has been 20 years. 20 years since Jacob swindled his brother out of his birthright with a bowl of soup. 20 years that that same brother deceitfully and maliciously stole the blessing from their father with the help of their mother, no less. Uh, Esau has been deeply wronged here, and it's hard for us to kind of even understand what's happened because the cultural context for a birthright and a blessing are something we don't, we don't get. And, and several weeks ago, Phil did go into that. So if you're interested, go back and listen to that podcast or grab the text from that sermon, and it may help unpack that a little bit for you. But suffice it to say, 
what happened to Esau here was very bad. Um, he has been deeply wronged by his brother. Everything changed for him 20 years ago. I mean, his life was ruined by his brother. Their family was destroyed by this incident. I mean, he had to move to a different part of the country. His inheritance was gone. The community, the tribe, the village, they all would have seen him differently. His role in the family would never be the same. I mean, and think, even if it was your brother that caused you this great pain, he disappeared after that. They didn't see him again. And, and it was done with the help of his own mother. So their family has been destroyed here. What happened to Esau was horrific. Have you ever been hurt like that? Have you ever had anybody injure you in such a way that it completely changed the course of your life? Maybe taken something from you that was irreplaceable, maybe cheated, lied to you in such a way that left you with nothing? And Jacob knows that the injury he caused was devastating. He gets it. He knows why his brother wanted to kill him. <laughs> I mean, his fear 20 years later is warranted. I, I, I don't think he was surprised when he sent his servants ahead, and then they came back and said, yeah, we found your brother, and he's on his way, and he has 400 men with him. I think Jacob was like, okay, okay. I mean, I imagine he's been dreading this moment every day for 20 years, probably hoping and intending never to have this moment, never to face him. But he will face him, and he will face it with intelligent humility this moment. I wanted to read that text because I think it's important to note that if you remember what the blessing was that he stole from his brother, a huge part of it was that he was going to be the master and lord over his brother and all their family, all their relatives. And so I hope you noticed that Jacob was quite intentional about delivering thousands and thousands of dollars worth of cattle in advance to his brother with servants along the way announcing these belong to your servant, Jacob, and they are for you, my lord Esau. I mean, that would not have been lost on Esau. Jacob is smart. He knows what he has done. Have you ever hurt someone like this? Maybe done something motivated by ego, or selfishness, or just your own pain that literally ended up making you want to hide in shame. I mean, the consequences of your choice left somebody else's life in shambles, and, and it just was way too hard to try and go back and make amends for that. Like, you just couldn't do it. It was too hard to face what you'd done. I mean, this relationship between Jacob and Esau is painful. And so many of our relationships are. I think we relate with this story because of it. And our title is fitting today, you know, because wrestling is a very good metaphor for what reconciliation actually feels like. <laughs> it is so hard. 
Uh, somebody once said that the more I get to know people, the more I really love my dog. Um, and I think that it, that's it, right? Like part of the risk of getting to know people is that at the very same time, we're letting them have access to hurt us. I mean, how do we get close enough to people without allowing them to know enough about us to injure us? And though I'm not sure it's really possible to get close to each other and not get hurt from time to time, I do think it's possible to have that pain and those injuries redeemed through forgiveness and reconciliation, which are very, very, very easy things to talk about and very, very hard things to live out. But most of us have probably been alive long enough to know that you can't really do it any other way. If you want to experience love and relationships, if you want to live at all, then forgiveness and reconciliation are really the only way to have relational freedom. And, and then here's the deeper thing for those of us that have decided to follow Jesus. Forgiveness and reconciliation are the foundation of our freedom in Christ, right? Jesus provided us great forgiveness and reconciled us to God. <clears throat> and so as the people of God, we are in turn responsible to offer that kind of forgiveness and that kind of reconciliation to other people. Um, that's, that's the work we're expected to do. We're, we're not supposed to let the pain and injury that we experience make us hard and unforgiving and bitter. We're supposed to let pain soften us and make us vulnerable and help us actually become more loving, gracious, generous people. And thank God, at least for a few verses in here, we get this really beautiful story of Jacob and Esau's encounter. And so 20 years later, here they are. And Jacob is not the same Jacob. God has finally broken that self-sufficient little manipulator. <laughs> finally. The night before this encounter, he's had this overnight wrestling match with a God, angel, man figure. And Jacob is no longer going to strut or swag to this encounter with Esau. He's limping. He's different. And Esau is not the same either. Esau is no longer plotting his brother's murder. He's no longer steeped in revenge. Something has shifted in him too. And so 20 years later, they meet. And in Genesis 33, I stuck it up here so you don't have to open again. It reads this way. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in the front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. And he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And then Esau looked up and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? And Jacob answered and said, They're the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down, and Leah and her children came and bowed down, and last of all, Joseph and Rachel came and they bowed down. And Esau asked, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. 
keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Please accept this present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Oh, I just cannot get enough of this story, right? Man, we've been learning so much about Jacob over the last several weeks, but I want to know who Esau is. Ah, oh. I'm just going to draw out five things about forgiveness and reconciliation that I think are really important this morning. Um, And I am not shooting from the hip. Um, I've been through some stuff that has made me uh, need to receive lots of forgiveness, and I have been injured plenty too. So I just want you to know, I know we all come to the table with our own stuff, um, but this stuff has had to be lived and learned through me too. And the first thing I think is reconciliation almost never happens by accident. Um, If you are waiting to feel ready to forgive, or you're waiting till the stars align, or like you see it written in the sky, uh, you may never get there. That's the reality. I mean, the precedent all throughout scripture is to go, to act, to do something, to take a step toward forgiveness and reconciliation to book that flight, to make that coffee appointment, to pick up that phone, to say, I'm sorry, to schedule that appointment with that therapist, whatever, to take a step. I mean, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift in worship and there you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift right there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Jesus basically puts such a priority that we are in right relationship with each other that he says, "Uh uh-uh, not interested in you making offerings and you being in worship. There's the door. Deal with it. Go settle what's going on. In Romans 12, 18, this has been like a mantra and a personal, like, I need to know this and I need to know this deep inside of me. If it is at all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know, these brothers waited 20 years. And maybe this injury needed 20 years to settle. Only God knows that. Some injuries take time, no doubt. (laughs) But finally, somebody did something about it. Jacob went home. He sent messengers ahead and said, I'm coming back. I'm coming to see you. And even Esau didn't just sit there and wait. He got up and went to go meet his brother on the way. They acted. They did something about it. Reconciliation takes someone doing something about it. I will say a short side note here. Sometimes the person you need reconciliation with has passed away. And that makes this part very difficult, doesn't it? Uh, and it, it's no longer possible, at least in completion on this side of eternity, right? Or, or maybe you've tried to make an attempt at reconciliation with someone and it's been, you know, it's not been well received. Or maybe it's not been reciprocated like you liked. Or maybe it's been flat out rejected. 
In situations like this, I always encourage people to take great peace in this passage. I mean, if it's at all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. I mean, we're only responsible for our own hearts and our own actions. At the end of the day, I'm going to stand before Jesus for the part I played, right? I hope that when I go and I make amends, that it's well-received and that there can be reconciliation and that there's some closure when there's some painful things that happen in life, right? But I don't get to control someone else's grief cycle. As much as I would love that, I don't get to decide when someone else is ready to forgive and when someone else is ready to let go of their grudge or whatever. And so as much as we would like it to always work out how we see it working out, sometimes we need to take great comfort that we do the very best that we can with what we're responsible for. As far as it depends on us, we live at peace. And then we leave it there. And we trust that God's got it. Second thing, forgiveness is a lot more than a feeling, and it takes time. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a conscious decision that you make. Um, and it's a choice that you make once, and then you make again, and then you make again. And maybe you need to make it five minutes later, or maybe you need to make it the next morning, or maybe a year later you find you still need to make that choice again. But it's a choice that has to be made over and over and over. Sometimes you will feel forgiving sort of feelings toward another person. But sometimes you don't. But we make a choice to forgive anyway, because we know that our emotions are changing, they're fleeting, they change from day to day, moment to moment. But what God has called us to do is right, regardless of whether or not our feelings follow immediately. And so yes, there will be moments where we will be overwhelmed and we will be able to see the person that has injured us and run to them, weeping and throw our arms around them. There are moments like that. And there are moments where we make a conscious choice to forgive somebody, but it feels more like we are clenching our fist and bitterness is still creeping up the back of our neck and we are saying, I forgive them, I forgive them, I forgive them, I forgive them. We forgive even if our feelings contradict the faithful choice we are making to do what God has called us to do. And it is very helpful to remember that the passage of time does help quite a bit. It eases the sting of the injury. It makes it easier to wish someone well that has injured us, that there's been some time. I don't know how long Esau plotted revenge and thought about how many different ways he could murder his brother. I have no idea how long he did that. Um, I imagine it took time. I imagine it was incredibly painful. It was a choice he had to make again and again and again, especially as he was reminded all the time of what he had lost. But at some point, clearly, somewhere along the way, his feelings followed his choice to forgive because he was able to embrace his brother and welcome him home. But if you are in a situation and you are waiting to see if you feel like forgiving someone, you might wait forever. The third thing, 
that's important to remember, I think, about this, is forgiveness requires that you absorb the cost of what happened. Um, in Scripture, the word forgiveness is a legal term that actually means like to release a person for an op- from an obligation or a debt. It has like a financial connotation to it. Um, the best example of, of like how to help understand this is by another pastor, Tim Keller. He's a, he's a great writer. And he, he uses this illustration. If a friend comes into my house and accidentally breaks my $50 lamp, that's a bummer, right? And he incurs a debt of $50. If he pays for it, if he replaces the lamp, I get my lamp back, but he's out $50. If I say that I'm going to forgive him, the cost, the debt of the lamp does not just vanish into thin air, right? When I forgive him, I absorb the cost of that debt. Either I have to go pay $50 to buy that lamp, or I lose the lighting in that room. But I absorb the cost if I choose to forgive him. To forgive is to cancel the debt to absorb the cost of what somebody else has done. Someone always pays every debt. Every injury that happens in relationship, there's a cost to it. And someone's paying for that. You can make the perpetrator suffer for it, or you can absorb it and forgive the debt. But that hurts. It stings quite a bit to absorb the cost of what other people have done to us. This doesn't mean we ignore the cost. I think that's an important thing. I think it's really, really sad when people are talking about their pain or they're talking about something they've been through and they say, oh, it's no big deal. Just forget it. It's okay. No, 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 it's probably not okay. It's probably actually a really big deal. Forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. The whole forgive and forget thing, it's not in the Bible. That was going around for a while in the church. I, I hope, hopefully you've not heard that. If you have, let me just clear that up right now. That's not in there. Um, that's, not, that's not what we're doing. Uh, I guarantee you Esau remembered very well what happened to him. You know, people say that because God says that he will remember our sins no more. But God does not mean he doesn't remember the things that we've done. He means he is no longer interested in holding the things we've done against us. That the stuff we do that wrecks our relationship with him, our mess, our pain, our sin, he is no longer going to let those things affect our ability to relate with him. He absorbs that cost for us. So forgiveness does not mean forgetting. It does not mean excusing what has happened to us. We don't pretend that what somebody did was not so bad. It was. There was a cost. There's a loss. And sometimes the cost is small. Sometimes we need to let some stuff go. Maybe someone pulled, you, pulled in front of you in traffic, or you got snubbed and not invited to an event, or somebody didn't say hi to you. 
we, we need to learn how to let some things roll off our back and let things go. Not every battle needs to be fought. However, there are intangible losses, things that have such a high cost that it, it can feel impossible to absorb them. Things like having your reputation destroyed or your career destroyed, the loss of a child, a good marriage, your safety. I mean, these things are devastating and horrific. They bring unspeakable pain. And it's only by the grace of God that we can ever hold those things, that we can learn to absorb those things, that we can forgive in the midst of those. But we don't forget. We don't pretend it away. We don't dismiss what happened to us. We acknowledge it. But when we forgive, we make a choice to absorb the cost of whatever debt was incurred instead of just adding more debt to the pile. Because, and this is my fourth thing here, holding a grudge really hurts us the very most. Remember that exchange with Peter and Jesus, and Peter asks Jesus, hey, how many times do we have to forgive somebody? Like seven times? And Jesus is like, uh, try 70 times seven. I, I don't think Jesus was like, 490 exactly. Like, I think the point was like, a lot of times, like just, it's just a way of life. You just need to get really, really good at it. and Very familiar with forgiving each other. There's no limit. Um, because think about it for a second. What's really the alternative to forgiveness and reconciliation? I mean, there's only one thing that costs more than forgiving somebody. Not forgiving someone. I don't know. I mean, think about this. Think about a life spent tallying up and holding all the terrible things that have happened to you. Yeah, no thank you. Or worse, the inverse. Spend your life tallying up all the terrible things you've done to incur pain on other people. Dear Jesus, right? Like, thank God for forgiveness and reconciliation. Like, that's the only way. It is painful. It is difficult. But it is by far the better option here. And we, we all know bitter people. We can probably all have somebody come to mind when we think of someone that's held on to bitterness for a long time. Non-forgiveness destroys us. It ruins us. Our grudges hurt us. I imagine some of us are sitting in chains in this room right now, just bound by the grudges maybe we've been holding for years. Louis B. Smead says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and then discover that that prisoner was you. Listen to this really great quote by Frederick Buechner. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Oh. Oh. You start out holding that grudge, but in the end, 
It's gotcha. We read a lot of Anne Lamott around here. We quote her a lot. You've probably noticed. But she says, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then standing over the rat and waiting for it to die. And here's kind of the tender part about this. Admittedly, if you've ever had a reason, I mean like an Esau sort of reason, to nurse resentment, to hold a grudge, forgiveness feels like insanity. I mean, it feels crazy. It feels like the worst idea ever. Because there's something human about protecting our fragile ego. And when someone really deeply wounds us and hurts us, it can feel like anger and resentment can make us feel strong for a minute. It can actually, for a second, help us feel like we're getting back on our feet again. Like maybe we're going to be okay in the end. Like maybe we're on the road to recovery. But this is not real. And it will not last. And anger will only make you feel stronger for a moment. Resentment and bitterness always leave us cold and bitter in the end if that is where we get stuck. I don't know if you remember, but after Jacob so brutally deceives his father, works with his mother to manipulate his father and steal that blessing from Esau, Esau finally does storm in with a meal prepared for his father and say, here I am, bless me. And in that moment, Isaac and Esau both realize, we've been swindled. Your brother was just here and he lied, and I already blessed him. And there's this exchange, it's painful to read. It says they're like both trembling violently, they're crying, screaming at each other. And I don't think Isaac is mad at Esau necessarily, I think, I think they're just both furious. And, and their family in one fell swoop has been destroyed by this encounter. And Esau's yelling at his father, going, you don't have a blessing for me? Like, is there nothing left for me? You blessed him? And Isaac's like, I got nothing left. He took all of it. He did it again, and he took it all. And he, and, and he finally, after Esau just going at him again and again, Isaac finally says, okay, here's your blessing. And, and it's referred to as like a, the bitter blessing. He says, you will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. And I cannot help but wonder if bitterness, if anger, if revenge might just be the yoke that God is referring to in this bitter blessing. Maybe Esau finally just got too tired of being angry. Maybe the unforgiveness was just destroying him. He was restless and he was done. And that forgiving Jacob actually set him free. Last thing. I think it really helps when we need to forgive someone to draw on our own need for forgiveness. 
you know, I'll give Jacob something. When he encounters Esau, he very appropriately and rightly attributes God to fixing everything in his life. You know, he refers to God in this whole reconciliation thing over and over again. He says, my children are here because God has graciously given them to me. He attributes his wealth to God dealing graciously with him. He says that his whole life is a gift of grace. He also says to Esau, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. Because Esau didn't treat him like his sins deserved. But he, he connects his reconciliation with God to this reconciliation he has with his brother. And all throughout the New Testament, even the affirmation of faith we read this morning, is going to connect our reconciliation with God with our reconciliation with each other. Ephesians 4, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Luke 11, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Jesus isn't saying that we earn his forgiveness when we forgive each other. We do not get more forgiven by forgiving. He's simply saying that people who have been forgiven are generally forgiving people. It's a cause and effect thing. And so Jesus accomplished the greatest act of reconciliation the world has ever known. So Christians ought to be the most forgiving people on earth. Because we get it. Pastor and writer Gary Preston tells this story about this traveler, and he's traveling all over Burma, and they come to this river, and this river guide, and he goes through this river, and he comes out the other side of the river, and he's covered in leeches, like torso all the way down his legs, and instinctively, of course, like this traveler starts trying to pull these leeches off of him, and the river guide is like, whoa, 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 be careful there. If you pull those leeches off, small bits of them will be left under your skin, Infection will set in, and you will set in, and you will surely die. He says, what you have to do is you have to soak in a balsam bath. The leeches will soak, and then they will detach themselves from your body, and you'll be fine. Preston observes, when I have been significantly injured by another person, I cannot simply yank the injury from myself and expect that all bitterness, malice, and emotion will be gone. Resentment still hides under the surface. The only way to become truly free of the offense and to forgive others is to bathe in the soothing bath of God's forgiveness of me. When I finally fathom the extent of God's love in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of others is a natural outflow. This stuff is hard, and it is so painful. But we are the people of Christ, and his very spirit lives in us, giving us the grace we need. We can all face our failures, our messes with humility, and seek forgiveness, offer repentance. And when we face the people that have hurt us and injured us, we can face them with grace and mercy, and we can offer them forgiveness. Because we have been forgiven. We can hold our pain. We can lean into our pain. We can allow it to soften us and shape us, to 
become the kind of people that love well, forgive much, and are willing to do the work of reconciliation. By the grace of Jesus Christ and for the glory of God, for sure. Amen. Let's stand.